Folks, let's have a brief word of prayer as we get started. God, we thank you that in this country we can gather freely to worship you and to speak openly about all of the things that are deep and dear to our hearts. We thank you that you have given us that freedom in knowing you and in being together with each other as family. Help us as family now to visit with things that are important to us and even more so important to you. Bring us to a fuller sense of knowledge and a deeper understanding of your truth that we might more rightly and powerfully follow your son in our lives today and always. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is still morning. Yes. <laughs> so let me set up this conversation just briefly. Um, we um, have had uh, in operation now for about 18 months a small group looking at many of the issues connected uh, with righteousness in the Bible and living righteous lives. Righteousness uh, sometimes as well is referred to as living by just justice, living justly in our lives. Um, and that conversation is expanding. And of course, anytime you actually preach the gospel, you, uh, you preach about God's justice, about God's righteousness. Uh, and so that was part of the genesis of the conversation uh, from the sermon a couple of weeks ago uh, that took us into a, a discussion of the story of the Good Samaritan. I've preached about the Good Samaritan before, as a matter of fact. The Good Samaritan is over there in stained glass window. Uh, out of all the stories in the scriptures, there are only a few images that we have memorialized in the stained glass, and that's one of the most important. So um, we thought it would be helpful based on the number of responses that we got uh, to the sermon itself. Uh, might be helpful and useful for folks to have a chance to visit some more, uh, not just about the story, but about its implications, about things that you might have uh, heard or thought about uh, in the sermon itself and another thought in conversation. So this really is a time for you to be in conversation with me and with each other uh, about things things that uh, the Lord has stirred up in your hearts so, so that we can hear each other and so that we can have this recorded for others uh, who may want to tune in on the conversation later. Uh, we'll ask you if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment simply to come to the microphone down front uh, and, and we'll engage the conversation that way. So um, I hope to not be talking most of the time that we're here. Uh, I've already been talking all morning long uh, and I'm bored. I'm tired of listening to myself now. So let's start here. Anybody that has a question or a comment, if you'd like to come forward and chat about it. Hi, I'm Penny. Um, the, the question I asked after Jack gave that fabulous sermon a couple weeks ago was the, the, the fact that they thought about the, the bad guys, the burglars that had done this horrible thing to the, you know, the good Samaritan, or the, the guy. And it just seemed like appropriate right now. We don't really think about, oh, um, you know, where other people have come from. And I thought, gee, I wonder what their story was. The two guys that, that beat him up and left him in the ditch and took all of his clothing and everything. It just, you know, are we supposed to have compassion for these people or do we, how do you, how do you do that, Jack? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I had, in, in all of my study and reading over the years, I'd never come across anybody who gave much attention to the robbers or to the thieves uh, without whom we wouldn't have the story. Um, and I thought that was an absolutely fascinating question. Now, obviously, um, in, in popular thought and in really what is sort of our default mode, 
um, we think in this way, or at least this is the way I think. Let me share that with you and you tell me then if that's the way you think. I think, okay, robbers and thieves, bad guys. Uh, not people like me, but, but bad guys. Um, and, and right there I've made a mistake because uh, there are ways in which we all live perhaps that take from others or that are not just and right with each other's, okay? Um, you automatically think about the robbers and thieves and thinks, wow, I wish I had been there to prevent this from happening, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I would have fled in terror or just not wanted to be involved. Um, very rarely do we sit back and ask the question, were these just uh, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad people? Or was there something else going on? Um, there is something in the human soul that, that is greedy and selfish and wants to take from others. But we also know that sometimes people take from others because they don't have enough. I'm reminded of uh, my uncle Reeves Eckerd, uh, who worked for the Internal Revenue Service of the federal government. And um, he was popularly called in South Carolina in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, he was called a revenuer. You know what that term means? He went out into the hollows and the hidden places to look for illegal bootlegging operations, stills. And um, by the way, he drove a really hot, souped-up Ford Galaxy 500 that went faster than anything I knew about, and he knew how to drive those back roads like nobody's business. But it was very interesting talking with Uncle Reeves later as an adult after I grew up, and Helen had a conversation with him as well that she remembers well. He said, you know, these folks that were, that were making illegal liquor and selling it uh, obviously were committing criminal activity. But he said most of them were dirt poor, and they had no skills whatsoever. And this was the only way that they could conceive to make a living. And he actually, when, when he died, uh, part of his obituary was about the fact that he was known to be a fair and compassionate IRS agent. And there were, was more than once when uh, the, the, the agents would surround an illegal still that uh, the, 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 the bootleggers um, would, would surrender to my uncle before they would surrender to anybody else because they knew they were going to be treated fairly because he had compassion on them. Now, that's one simple example, one simple story that tells us there's a human side also behind the robbers and the thieves. Theologically, if we're to look at this carefully, we have to say that God loved them too. And so, um, I, you know, I believe in the criminal justice system. I believe in holding people accountable for their actions, all of that. But I also believe that an awful lot of behavior in the world is, is uh, at least aided and abetted uh, by things that we would have sympathy for. It's not to excuse robbery or theft in any way, shape, or form. But let's look at some of the things that lead people in that direction. So that's how I would respond to that issue and that concern and, and suggest that when we look at someone who's doing something that we don't like, that we need to look at the deeper underlying causes of it. Some of it is greed. Some of it is malice. Some of it is just purely evil stuff uh, for which there is no excuse that lives in all of us. But some of it is something that we could do something about. So thank you for that question.
someone else. Okay, we've pretty much solved it all here. So thank you, oh no, Bob. <laughs> Better. I think what's truly interesting in, in your discussion now about understanding things from the robber's perspective is that, um, and one thing I had not very seldom thought about in the past, um, as Christians, we all wanna think that we are the guy, the, the Samaritan. We're the one who comes and does what's good, what's right, what is appropriate, what is, in our minds, Christ-like. But I think the important thing is we have to understand we can see ourselves in every one of the roles mm -hmm. in that parable. That we can see ourselves as, as the robbers who, for one re reason or another, mistreated other people. We can see ourselves as the, um, as the priests and the, um, and, uh, and the uh, rulers who looked the other way and didn't show compassion. Uh, we can see ourselves as the Samaritan who takes the time to, to do what he did. But um, we need to be convicted that we can be all of those things uh, and many times at the same time. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. No, thank, thank you for that comment and that perspective. Every single story in the Bible is full of people and uh, people uh, in many respects are exactly the same everywhere, filled with potential for good, filled with potential for bad. And the stories that Jesus told often uh, upended or twisted the popular concept of that day about who the good were and who the bad were. Uh, obviously that happens in the story of the good Samaritan. Um, a good Jew uh, of southern Israel, the region of Judah, Jerusalem, um, would have never used the term good Samaritan. It was inconceivable to them that a Samaritan could be good. And so right there, Jesus says, there is good potentially in everyone. And it's interesting, I, you know, I love history. I love to read about, you know, people like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, just to name a few. Um, and they had families that loved them, uh, and they were good to some people. Uh, we hear those names and we think of abject evil, uh, but, but there was not absolute evil in them or, or in anybody else. And conversely, there is not absolute good in anyone. And so you're exactly right that when we look at the story, we need to look at every character in every story and see ourselves in those stories. And then it's not just about seeing ourselves in those stories. I mean, it's great. We could sit here and talk about the Good Samaritan uh, for 10 hours and go home feeling very, very good about ourselves that we had done that. But the reason for the story is that so we actually change our behavior and govern our behavior by how we go out then and live in the world. And so the next time you're headed down to Jericho, or wherever that is. You have to think about what you're going to do. And so we have to take this into today. Uh, one of the things that, that people of mature faith uh, and just mature character are able to do better than others is to put themselves in the other person's place. No matter how strange or weird or undesirable that place might seem to be. Uh, we call that empathy, we call it sympathy, they are slightly different things, 
but the ability to put yourself in the other person's place and understand what is happening with them is key to actually getting along with other people. It's a skill that we try to teach people as they are preparing to get married. There are still a few foolhardy people in the world that choose to get married and make a commitment to get along with one other person in the world. And it is a fundamental skill that's required in marriage to put yourself into your spouse's place sometimes, to see why they are why they are, and to see why they have just said what they've just said and why they've just done what they've just done. Well, that fundamental skill is something that we need to apply to every body in the world. Sometimes you might find something that, that needs correction and change on their part, sometimes on other people's part, but it's fundamental to the skill of being human. Well, it's good to be here with you. Thank, thank you. I, uh, I just uh, haven't grown up in this church. We came in 1969, and uh, we've been a part of the life of the church, and uh, it's just been a wonder. We, you know, we used to meet over there in the little chapel, and then this got, the fellowship got built, this got built. And I really am grateful for the perspective of history to see how faithful the generations that were here. I mean, we, it was here when we got here, and there was a really wonderful community. And there was a time when I was kind of high and mighty thinking, well, I don't want to put money in Rancho Santa Fe. I'd rather go down with the homeless because, you know, just remember, we had this conversation. You know, mm -hmm. why do we need a really fancy church? I mean, the Rancho, all the people are, you know, wealthy, why don't we go down to the homeless and internationally where people don't have anything on $2 a day, you know, you can change somebody's life. Anyways, uh, I do see the place for the community. I, I think I've, I've, I've grown into it. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to, I, I wanted to uh, just touch base with is you talked about marriage, and it's an interesting thing. So as you know, I'm married to a Catholic bride, which we were youth pastors here. I love her. And it's uh, the, the so I'll try to land the plane here. The the uh, when your spouse either has a difficulty coming or people have fear of coming to church, or for reasons lots of reasons why people don't show up in the building. Mm -hmm. And the the the, the uh, uh, trying to balance that. I mean the fear. I just think it's it's evil. I mean this, I mean the the part where this. How many members are in this church? Uh, about a thousand, or used to be. We're not real sure there's anymore. There's 20 people. How I many? There's 30 people here. I, I mean, don't touch your loved ones. Don't touch your kids. Don't lay hands on people. Don't pray for people. Don't sing. Don't sing. Don't worship God. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. this is evil. I, I mean, really evil. And I, I, I think it's. I mean, the, the Presbyterians love to have meetings and talk about it very gently and educationally. And so do the Catholics. I mean, they're, they won't say it the same. But at least in my view, we need to, you know, man up and, and be brave and courageous and come together as a community. And I, I mean, I guess I'm 60 years old, so I'm different if somebody's 80, 85, or, you know, where you really are at risk. But so many people aren't at risk. Can you talk about how do we banish the fear, keep the hope, and banish the fear to bring us back together in this wonderful building? And uh, how do we balance the competing things where other people either don't want to come or have reasons not to come? How do we stay together married 
and in relationship when different people don't feel like they can be here. Yeah, yeah. No, lots of lots of good questions uh, that obviously this church and every other church and ev every other organization and institution and business and family has been dealing with for the last uh, 18 months since the pandemic started and before that with other things. Um, obviously, when we look at what the Christian faith teaches us through a story like the Good Samaritan or other things, one of the things that we learn is that life in some ways is very, very simple, but in other ways is very complex because everybody has their own perspective, their own understanding. You know, if we, if we had the priest and the Levite here to defend their actions in, in walking by the man uh, on the side of the road, they'd, they'd give us some pretty good reasons and things that we would want to think about and consider and reasons that we have given to our own children and I'll speak here as a husband and a father who comes from a tradition that is very protective of women. Um, the reasons we would give for not stopping would be about your own personal safety, okay? Um, and so um, that story partly teaches us to look at all the different perspectives, all the different reasons, all the different things going on. And then, of course, we laud the Good Samaritan for choosing to do the right thing in that situation. That is a skill that should become a habit and pattern of the way that people of the church interact with each other that then uh, informs and directs everything else that we do in the life of the pandemic, for instance. Uh, uh, it might come as a shock to you that we have a variety of opinions in the church about how the church should have responded <laughs> and should be responding to the pandemic. And um, it will come as no surprise to you that the session has made decisions uh, about how we would do all of that. Um, and um, part of our plea is for the church simply to stay together in the midst of all of that. Um, I agree with you. Uh, and here I will explain why and how I agree with you uh, when we say that it is evil that we would not come together and that we would not worship God and that we would not be present with each other and in relationship with each other and all of those things. There's a conversation to be had, of course, about exactly how we can do that in the midst of a pandemic. And I'm thankful that in today's modern world and in this place where we live in Southern California, that even though we were faced with so many restrictions and so many competing ways of thinking about how we interact, we still were able to do that. Um, the fact is, uh, some people will say, well, the government shut churches down. Well, no, as a matter of fact, the government did not shut churches down. In those places where government has tried to shut churches down, like China or Iran or any number of other places in the world today, the church doesn't shut down. The church simply goes underground. And so I take as an example to us and as an inspiration to us, I take the history of the church, both old history and current history being lived out today, that the church always should and can and does find ways to keep being the church. 
And even though we might disagree about whether we should wear masks in church or stay distanced or any of that other stuff, the fact is that we have been able to continue to be the church. Has it been inconvenient sometimes? Of course. Has it been unfortunate sometimes? Of course. Would we like it to change? Of course. Nevertheless, we still are allowed to be the church. Now, I can remember conversations in my home church from when the worship hour was moved from 11 o'clock to 9 o'clock, and certain people in the church thought that that was just an ungodly, unholy thing to do. How dare we have to accommodate to somebody else's schedule? And that seems like a silly conversation today, but it was the same kind of conversation that we've had recently about the different ways that we have had to accommodate to different ways of thinking about and responding to the pandemic. They're all the same thing. Uh, there are a lot of people who won't come to this church because there's a pipe organ, and they don't like the pipe organ. There's people who don't come to this church at the nine o'clock hour because they don't like drums or guitars in worship. There are people who think the backs of these pews should be padded as well as the seats of these pews. I can go on and on and on. And yes, we will continue to have arguments and conversations about how is the best way to move through whatever the particular challenge is today. But the bottom line of all of it is that we are called to be the church regardless of what challenges there are and regardless of the accommodations that we make for each other. Regarding the pandemic, we've said all along that out of an abundance of caution, maybe too much caution, we have done certain things in certain ways. We'd rather have too much than too little. And so that's where the conversation all lies, right? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the church should walk out of any particular situation or time period in history and say, we are still the church. We are still brothers and sisters in the life of faith. And we might have not liked how things went a particular way or we might have liked it, but none of that's important. It's not as important as the relationship we have with each other and with God and the work that we have to do to move life forward. I'd like to uh, spin it back a little bit. Your sermon a couple of weeks ago, uh, I really appreciated, and I thought it was a bit of a breakthrough or a little change in direction. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I thought we were changing direction about service to others mm -hmm. outside of this church. Mm -hmm. Would you care to comment on that if I read it right? You bet. You bet. Um, I don't know that I would say it's a change of direction. I, I would say that, that it is a focus on a direction the church always should be going in uh, and in service to others. Uh, and um, I will say that within, within my own spirit, if you will, and soul, that I often need uh, a corrective. I think this is true of all of us, but I can only speak authoritatively about what goes on inside my head some of the times. Most of the time, I don't understand what's going on inside my head. But when I start to feel sorry for myself or feel like challenges of life are too big or I start to feel lost or start to feel like I'm tired and ready to quit, it always helps me to get in touch again with the truth of Scripture, with the stories of Jesus, with the example of Jesus, and how that example and story and truth is lived out in people's real lives, whether 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago or, or 20 minutes ago. 
And the story of the Good Samaritan takes me to, back to that understanding that regardless of what's going on in my particular life at a particular moment, I am called to live part of my life outside of myself. And if I can do that, then myself is going to be a healthier self than if I do not. Um, it's interesting how all of this sort of comes together. Uh, we can choose to gripe and moan and be sad about having to wear masks or, or whatever. Um, at the end of the day, so what? We're still called to do Jesus' work out in the world. That's the more important thing. And as, as I look at the story of the Good Samaritan and think about all the different characters in it and all the different options available to us, um, you see in the Samaritan himself uh, a person who, regardless of all of the other situations, all of the other realities of that situation, the politics, the, the, the medical aspects, the, the, the physical aspects, the danger, the cultural interactions, all of that, he simply chose to do the right thing that was good for somebody else. And that's what we're called to do. And so I think one of the ways that we live through the challenges of life is by getting outside of our own challenges and living in somebody else's challenge for a while. Because you will be hard pressed to find uh, anybody, or you will be hard pressed not to find somebody who is worse off and needs you more than you need to wallow in your own misery. Does that make sense to you? Um, I'm so reminded and instructed by uh, our Christian, and I call them our Christian brothers and sisters in places where there truly are challenges to the act of being the church. Um, I'm sorry we have to wear a mask inside the church, but I've worshiped in churches that were 30 degrees and 95-year-old men and women showed up for two-hour worship services wearing all the clothing they could, and they were not going to be put off from worship by the simple fact that it was cold and there was no electricity and had not been for three years, but they still were going to worship. I can give you a million examples like that. And so regardless of the pandemic, regardless of whatever the political strife is in this world, regardless of whatever our problems are, we still must be engaged with the real problems of the real world. And I have to be reminded of that every once in a while. Knocked upside the head and said, get over yourself, get out there and keep doing the work. And then you hear it in the sermons that I preach to you. All my sermons are to myself. You just listen in. <laughs> in a world of good and evil where we're taught not to judge, Let's pretend that the situation had changed in the Good Samaritan and the victim was able to defend himself and beat up the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Taking that a step further to your example of Hitler and Stalin, if I came across them knowing who they were in a ditch, what do I do? Well, there's a good question. Let's see, Jan Farley's going to answer that question. No. <laughs> yes, yes. Let me start here. It's a great, it is a good question. And I often, uh, in my own thinking about the thing, about all things, 
I will take a situation to its extreme limits uh, in order to try to understand situations that are not as extreme. Uh, and in the world that most of us grew up in, uh, if you wanted to throw in the nuclear option in conversations like this, you, you mentioned Hitler, right? Uh, and I still do that in my thinking, and Hitler and Stalin and whoever else, right? Um, it's a great question as well in that um, it raises the deeper question of what is the right thing to do? It is not always obvious. It's not always black and white, right? Um, I'll rephrase the, the situation as you phrased it just a little bit, but it's exactly the same situation. What if in 1933 or 1936, somebody had sensed uh, what was coming in the creation uh, of, of fascism and the Nazi empire, uh, and they had the opportunity uh, to kill Adolf Hitler before all of that happened. Would that have been the right thing to do? Um, it's an interesting question. At, at what point in time do we do something that on the surface of it seems to be the wrong thing that might in the end be the right thing? Um, when we take the question to the extremes, it shows us the ambiguity and the difficulty of making real decisions in real time in real life, doesn't it? And that helps us, number one, to understand our limitations in knowing what is truly the right and good thing always, and to understand the humility that we must have as we're going to address these difficult things, and to employ that humility as we try to address those things with each other. Um, I don't see much of that humility in much public discourse today, where people admit the difficulty of intractable issues. Um, along with the humility, at some point we have to have some form of confidence in making decisions and moving forward. Um, again, if, if you had encountered Hitler or Stalin, Hitler or Stalin by the side of the road. Uh, you could walk by and let them die, or you could stop and help them. Some people would say, well, I would just leave the scene. Uh, but a long time ago, I came across this saying that I think is still, I thought it was true then, I think it's still true now, that not to decide is to decide. And we are not given the luxury of not deciding about something. We are not given the luxury of not engaging something. Now, you can't do everything about every situation. But the moment we choose not to engage an issue or a question or a problem, in this case, as you put it, whether or not to help Hitler and Stalin, or whatever the issue is, if you, if you refuse to engage that situation, to address it, to deal with it, then you have given your answer. You've, you've made a choice, you've made a decision. You cannot not make a choice. You must always make a choice and you must do something. The specific choice of what I would do if it were Hitler lying there by the side of the road, I can't tell you what it would be. I'd have to ask a lot of questions. Um, 
Would it be the young Hitler who maybe still had a chance of being redeemed and redirected and steered? Would it be the old Hitler at the height of his power uh, who needed to be taken out? Um, you know, personally, uh, I would like to think that if it were me uh, in 1939 or 1941, or pick your time period in history, uh, if you had the choice to eliminate the evil that existed in him by, and the only choice, the only way to do it would be to eliminate him, I would like to think that I would do that. Uh, and that tens of millions of people might be spared their suffering as a result. There's a historical question to be asked about whether or not just eliminating Adolf Hitler would actually eliminate the problem of Nazism. Would someone else have risen to the fore and tried to bring Germany back to its so-called former power and glory? Uh, who knows? Uh, but those are all the kinds of questions we have to ask. Uh, again, to take it home to what we do today, we have to understand that when we choose not to engage a particular such situation, uh, whether it be a simple situation like one person lying by the side of the road or a complicated situation, and most of the things in life we look at today are very complicated situations. When we choose not to engage them, we've already decided to do nothing. When we at least choose to engage those situations and try to be involved in some way in something, then we open ourselves to a world of heartache, but we also open ourselves to the presence and power and movement of God in doing something through us that maybe needs to be done. Uh, take your list of issues today, uh, whether it be human sex trafficking or racism or any one of a number of other evils that exist in the society and world today. Um, to the extent that we don't address them, we leave them for somebody else to address and we leave them for other people to suffer. I'm thankful uh, that in generations past, people chose to address evils of slavery, for instance, or evils of the unequal treatment of women. I'm thankful that I don't live in Afghanistan where I would have to watch my wife and my daughters and my granddaughters live in the, the midst of abject evil um, in, in a society that simply does not value them. So I, that's kind of a rambling answer to you, but, it, but it, I think it highlights and outlines some of the issues and some of the questions that we must, as people of faith, take very seriously. And, and this is one of the ways that we do that, by speaking with each other openly and honestly about those things that are important to us and about the difficult things that, that, that are ahead of us as we try to address them. And uh, again, the story itself and the example of Jesus takes us directly into that. Did that begin to get at some of what you were thinking about? I, just, I love storytelling. Mm -hmm. And when I started teaching at Point Loma, I only got in there by the skin of my teeth because a Presbyterian in a Nazarene school. Yeah, that, I still don't believe that part. But, <laughs> but I remember one time about going, taking one of my students to the hospital for her training. And we found out the patient and we looked at the thing and we thought, this is wonderful for her to learn. When we found out though, the woman was a, a survivor of Auschwitz. And her daughter came out and she said, are you sure that you can take care of my mother? And I said, I will be with her when she takes care of your mother. Mm -hmm. And it was such a wonderful experience for the student to get out of her body into looking at this patient. And 
for the daughter to watch how their interaction was going. And at the end of the day, it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience for the mother, for the daughter, and for the student, mm -hmm. and for me. Mm -hmm. And I've used that story so many times with my students. And I wonder sometimes when we visit with friends here, do we really know their studies, their stories? Do we, do, do we really interact with people so that we can really know them? I would love to have some way that we can share our stories with each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that, thank you for that. One of the things that, that some of us who've been in conversation lately have been, have been thinking about is um, opportunities that we need to create for our congregation to hear the stories of people uh, that are speaking from out of their own experience that's not, not good. Um, one of the things that the human being likes to do is listen only to happy stuff or stuff that agrees with what we think. Uh, we don't like to listen to sad stuff, painful stuff. We don't like to engage the pain that is there in someone else's story. We don't like to think about somebody and, and something that disagrees with or challenges where we are and, and, and what we are in. And so, um, however, I, that's certainly not the just and righteous thing to do. Uh, the just and righteous thing to do is to engage with, with whoever and whatever the Lord puts in your path to engage with. And, um, and so we need to hear from people who um, have suffered in the past and are suffering now. Uh, we might disagree with what they identify as the sources of that suffering or the solutions to that suffering. Nevertheless, we still need to listen. Again, it's a, I, I'm, I'm impressed more and more how interpersonal skills between two people are the same skills that we need between two billion people over here and two billion people over there. It's exactly the same thing. We need to not turn our back on someone who is unlike us or someone who makes us uncomfortable because of who and what they are, what they might be saying. We need, need to instead to learn to engage people, not to disengage our minds, but to engage our hearts a little bit more, uh, to care about what they might have to say, to care about what their experience is, and then to engage our hearts and minds with their hearts and minds to try to figure out a way forward. If we don't do that, in my opinion, then we consign the world to continued dysfunction. Again, I find history very, very illustrative. I'll bet in this room right now we have some Germans. We might have, I don't know, do we have any Japanese in this room? Do we have any Irish people in this room? Do we have any Scots people in this room? Okay, I've just mentioned several groups of people who historically, at different periods, tried to kill each other. That's all there is to it in history. And yet, at some point, those groups of people were able to sit down and figure out how not to kill each other anymore and how to get along with each other. And that skill of listening, empathizing with, finding solutions to is absolutely vital for the world to get along with itself. We, we've done it successfully. Are there any English people here? 
Are there any French people here? You can't read English literature or French literature or watch any of the movies that are on TV these days without hearing about the long history of warfare between France and England. If it weren't for the history of war between France and England, there would be no United States of America because the French would not have allied themselves with the colonies against the English. But today we get along with each other. So we have to move that forward in our own time with people that we might disagree with about any number of issues and any number of questions. At one point in time in the history of this country and in the history of Western thought, somebody decided to take on the question of, of um, unfair, unbalanced treatment of, of men versus women. That's just simple history. I'm thankful that somebody did that. Otherwise, again, the way my wife and children and granddaughters would, would be treated would be very different today, and I wouldn't be happy about it. So let's let our history inform us, and then let's let our faith inform how it is that we engage these things. And from a faith perspective, we always must come back to our common family relationship in Jesus Christ, who refuses to let us ignore each other. Tyler talked about a Presbyterian being married to a Catholic. Oh, my heavenly days. <laughs> I grew up in a town that was 85% Catholic and where it was common table conversation as I was growing up about the fact that never would a Catholic marry a Protestant or vice versa. And today that conversation just doesn't happen because we've moved beyond that to something more important than that. And that's what we're called to. Anyhow, thank you for that comment. Yes, listen to the stories. So, Here in the study of this, um, Good Samaritan, it starts with the man who gets beat up on the road and Jesus teaches, the way he teaches it, those who are listening identify with the man traveling. <clears throat> if you were to say to us, like you're on your way up to LA and you get run off the road and beat up, so we're that person, a person that we would never anticipate, the Good Samaritan is the one who helps us. How do we as a community begin to interact with those who we always think, oh, we either want nothing to do with them or, or we'll help you, but you have nothing to offer us. Whereas mm -hmm. in this story, it's the most unexpected. But we're that, we're that person beat up on the road. How do we um, embrace and allow that kind of community to grow? Yeah, yeah. Interesting question. Isn't this a simple little story like the Good Samaritan? A guy's beat up, two people don't help him, one guy helps him, he's the good guy, right? There's so many different aspects to that story. We do identify with the, the poor, helpless victim lying by the side of the road because some of us in this room have been victims. And all of us in this room are afraid of being victims someday. Okay, the story right there tells us that we are meant to identify with the victim. Here's one challenge to us. Will we identify with victims who are not like us? Right? I'm always amazed, and I understand why this happens. I understand that I'm probably not going to change it, but I'm always amazed, and, and this is partly in me. You hear a story on the news that 50 people were killed in a plane crash in Russia. And that's all you hear about it. 
because if they're Russian, they don't count. Or you hear a story about 200 people who were killed in a tsunami in the Philippines, and there were 12 Americans among them. Why, it is, why is it important that we know that there were 12 Americans? Well, all of that happens in our media because we are interested in the people that, are, that we think are like us. What about all the people that are not like us? What about all the victims out there that we disregard simply because they're not, not like us? Are, are they not actual victims? I have to tell you that ever since I went to the Middle East, I pay a whole lot more attention to what's going on in the Middle East and have a whole lot more empathy when you read that a mosque uh, was, was uh, attacked by, by a suicide bomber, uh, and 30 Muslims were killed. Well, a lot of time we just disregard, oh, it was just Muslims that were killed, who cares? Well, sorry, I know some of those Muslims now, and I care about them, and so I pay attention. And so the story calls us to, to identify with the victim, and then it calls us to expand our understanding of who the victims are, because everybody can be a victim, right? And that's also an important skill for people who follow Jesus to learn, is regardless of who the victim is, we can put ourselves in their place and then maybe begin to do something about it. Is that part of what you were getting at, Jan? Yeah, how do we allow them to care for us? Yeah, also a very good perspective in that um, being from this particular country that you and I live in, uh, in this particular time of our history, it is our tendency to think that we have all the answers, we know all the answers, we have all the resources, just do it like us, let us take care of you and everything will be fine. And that's actually not the case. Um, I have learned from people in the world who have pretty much nothing now in terms of material wealth. All they have is the clothes on their back and the few possessions they were able to carry out of Iraq or Syria, for instance. I've learned from people like that that they have a lot to teach me about what's important in the world. And they have a lot to teach me about how to keep on going when things are tough. And I'm sorry that you have to wear a mask, but my family was faced with the problem of having their heads cut off or leaving town. And so most of us left town. The ones that didn't had their heads cut off. Okay, that's an issue. <laughs> um, there is much we have to learn from all the victims of the world uh, about, about what's truly important in our own lives and how we live through our own lives. That's absolutely true. Thank you for that perspective. A little bit, if you could. I will share with you an experience that I had. I was a local school teacher here in Rancho, a history teacher. And um, in 1985, I returned to Iwo Jima with my father and 200 Americans. Mm -hmm. We returned um, to that island. We met the Japanese in Tokyo. 2,000 greeted us. Now, mind you, uh, my father was a, <clears throat> a corpsman helping the wounded on the front lines without a gun. He survived Iwo Jima, Saipan, Tinian, and the Marianas. Um, and I said, Dad, what do you, and I, as, as I'm watching the movie Sands of Iwo Jima at 15 years old, I looked over at him and I said, you said that word once, Iwo Jima. Don't tell me you were on that island. He never talked about it. And I, he said, four. I said, you were on four invasions? 
He said, yes, helping the wounded. And I said, were you ever shot at? He said, Donna, we weren't allowed to have guns. Our corpsmen today do because they were targets. And in their belief system for every corpsman that they killed, um, it was like killing 10 Americans. My dad studied with the Jesuits at Loyola for four years and was in medical school at Creighton University for four years and leaves medical school his last year. And I said, why, Dad, did you leave? And he said, our boys needed me in the Pacific. And the interesting story, 40 years later, we, a, a local gal, uh, a travel agency, got permission from Ronald Reagan for us to return in peace so that our two countries could connect in a different frame, a different time. Um, and it was interesting. I took my dad on 18 trips to Washington, D.C. with 65 of my children. And we always went to the Iwo Jima, the famous raising of the flag. And he spoke to the children from my, that, that were on the trip about forgiveness. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And my dad was the first to put his hand out and peace the Japanese on that island. Now, mind you, we lost 10,000 men there. And the Japanese lost 20,000. But if you can come together and another nation is willing to come together in peace, then you have success. We have, or an ally is my understanding with Japan today. Mm -hmm. So how do we get to that point? Yeah. There's a question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, we learn so much from warfare, sadly. Mm -hmm. It takes mm -hmm. war to teach us those things. Mm -hmm. um, part of what we've learned is, in some ways, is that the more we work at resolving the things that divide us or the things that take away from the basic needs of all humanity, the more we're able to do that, mm -hmm. uh, the better off we are. Mm -hmm. um, this, uh, this it feels sort of like a history test in some ways, yes. but after World War I, uh, the, the Allied powers imposed uh, huge war reparation demands on Germany mm -hmm. uh, that, that in some ways kept the nation of Germany from rebuilding itself, mm -hmm. and that scholars generally will agree um, fed into the climate, the conditions, and the culture, and the society uh, that allowed Hitler to rise to power. Right. Um, and so after World War II, having learned from that experience, we uh, adopted the Marshall Plan, which poured billions and billions of dollars into rebuilding In Germany, Germany and rebuilding Japan, mm -hmm. and saying, okay, let's forgive the past, and let's build something different, something new. Uh, which means that Germany and Japan now are uh, some of our strongest allies. That's an important lesson to learn because what it means is that once something has fallen apart and you try to figure out how to put it back together again, you go back to common needs, common goals, common interests, and try to take care of everybody's needs and issues and questions. Mm -hmm. And you do that in a marriage, 
Uh, when people are struggling to remember why they got married, you help them remember why they got married, that they loved each other and had common goals, common interests, common dreams, and then build back from that. And so you try to rebuild the positive things that exist in relationships, not just with individuals, but with countries. Mm -hmm. um, a, it's an interesting question. I'll, I'll venture this a little bit, and then we'll be gone from here. Um, in the question about immigration, particularly immigration from south of our border, right? I, I understand that immigration is a complex issue and question. Uh, if you let too many people in all at once, uh, it's, it's hard for a society to survive. Lebanon is struggling with that mightily right now, where one out of five people who live in Lebanon, maybe more than that, are actually not from Lebanon. They have no way to support themselves. They're, they're from uh, Iraq initially and then now from Syria. Uh, so unlimited immigration of allowing everybody in all at once creates its own problems, doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, but you have to look at why the problem exists in the first place. Why did so many people from Iraq and Syria flood into Lebanon? Because of war. So if there had been no war in Syria or in Iraq, there would be no refugee problem. You can go back even further, frankly, uh, and talk about what at one time was half a million Palestinian refugees that came into southern Lebanon. They prim out primarily now are related to the Hezbollah party, uh, which we see as an enemy, but initially they were just Palestinians who got the heck out of Israel. Uh, well, if we had been able to find a way to bring more peace and more successful relationships in Israel, that problem would not have existed. And so when someone says that one of the solutions or a piece of the solution to the immigration problem from south of our border is to go into those nations where there is much poverty, where there's incredible violence against people because of gangs and corrupt governments, uh, the way to solve the problem of people wanting to leave home and come here is to make home a better place. They're right. That makes perfect sense. That makes historic sense. And so how we do that, of course, is a difficult thing. It's not easy. Uh, and it's fraught with problems. But that is the only way through. You, you can't, uh, people do what they do for a reason. <laughs> and you have to solve the reason. So thank you for that comment. Thank you for that perspective. We will have more of these if these are helpful to you, if they're interesting, if they're useful uh, on a periodic basis, not just to talk about one particular sermon necessarily, but especially to continue to talk about some of the real problems and issues that face us today. Um, I, I am one who does not like to just spout my particular beliefs or politics or anything else from the pulpit because you don't have a chance to talk back to me, uh, and it's best for us to be in conversation. So thank you for coming. Let us know uh, how this has been or has not been useful to you, uh, and we will adjust accordingly as we go through. So thank you for your time. God bless you all. It's time for my nap. I don't know about yours. Blessings. <laughs>